The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. So I was sitting here smiling to myself because I was reflecting on how agitated I get before I have to come and sit in this seat. I have all sorts of ex- expectations for myself. And, um, but when I sat down and started meditating, it was just like, ah, I just felt the support of everyone here and the fact that we're all here just trying to figure it out together. So it took a little bit of the pressure off. So thank you. <laughs> so who was here on Sunday night uh, when Nakaway and Angela spoke about refuge? Yeah, some were, yeah. So uh, they had this lovely dialogue going about Refuge, and um, I had actually been planning on talking about refuge tonight, and then I thought, "Oh God, I can't talk about refuge." You know, they they covered it all; it was so beautiful. <laughs> what do I know? But I'm going to talk about it anyways. <laughs> and um, I think I have something to offer, perhaps. I don't know. Um, yeah, but that, they just really set the tone. And I think the thing that came through for me, I don't know about others who heard them, was that they loved the Dharma so much. It just came out of their pores. It was beautiful. And so, um, yeah, that's what I took away. I don't really know what they said about refuge, but it was just so... <laughs> you know, you, you won't remember anything I said either. Um, so <laughs> that's okay. Um, actually, what I like to do is tell other people's stories because you will remember those. So I am going to share one tonight. And if you've heard me speak before, I usually do that. So I will do that. So I have been thinking a lot about refuge, actually, because I've been studying with somebody that I'm going to talk about in a little bit. And uh, he's helped me to understand it a little, little more and to find ways to take refuge myself. So raise your hand if taking refuge is kind of a new concept for you. Okay. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of what's called taking refuge or going to refuge, and I'm going to talk about how it's done, and then ways that I found into the practice myself. So... So often when you go to a meditation center for something um, longer than, than an hour, an hour and a half, part of the process is of entering into the Dharma is something called taking refuge or going uh, for refuge. And it's actually a very ancient practice. It predates the Buddha. Taking refuge exists in probably most faith traditions. I'm not familiar with all of them. But um, in pre-Buddhist India, it was um, going for refuge meant that you proclaimed allegiance to a god or to a teacher, a priest, uh, to a powerful person. And you were, in a way, asking for protection from that being. Um, And so when the earliest followers of the Buddha came on the scene, um, they adopted this practice of taking refuge. But Buddhism is a non-theistic practice, right? So they were taking refuge in a god, 
um, that they were taking refuge in the Buddha or the the, the truth of an enlightened one, uh, the Dhamma or the teachings, and the Sangha. This is a Sangha here of, of practitioners, of people who are on the path. And so it wasn't that they were denying that there are dangers in life, um, because of course there are, but they were recognizing that the most important dangers are actually in here. They're a making of the mind. And in Buddhism, they're classically described as greed, anger, and delusion. So, so these refuges were a way of helping to deal with the mind. And also, the mind was recognized as the place where one gains release. So it's both the problem and the solution in a strange way. Um, so I'm borrowing a model from somebody named Tanisaro Bhikkhu, so Bhikkhu means he's a monk. Tanisaro, I guess, is his Buddhist name. I don't actually know what it means. Does anybody know what Tanisaro means? He's an American. He's a foremost scholar of this tradition of Buddhism. He writes a lot of stuff on access to insight, which I like to look at. And um, he talks about two kinds of, of refuge in Buddhism, external refuges and internal refuges. So the external refuges are what I just described, the Buddha or the idea that there can be someone awakened, the Dhamma or the teachings, and the Sangha or the community of people who are practicing. And the internal refuge is our mind. So the mind is both the place where we encounter these obstacles, and the mind is also the place where we're released or find freedom. So that's the internal refuge. Although that's not talked about too much. It's not part of the kind of this, the ritual of taking refuge that I'm familiar with anyways. So as an external refuge, um, the Buddha provides the example. I mean, a, he was a human being, not a god, of someone, a human being that we can emulate. So there's actually somebody out there that did this. And he used the conditions of his own life. I'm using his. I'm assuming it was a him. I don't know. Using his own life and the chaos of his own mind for cultivating liberation. So it's something that we can relate to in a very human way. So this is what Tanisaro Biko says about that. Taking refuge in the Buddha's life is applicable because he started out in basically the same kind of life that we lead, with the same confusion. But he renounced that life in order to find the truth. He went through a lot of religious trips. Yeah, he did, actually. Uh, you know, as, as you may know, he tried these various practices that were very um, popular in his day, extreme asceticism, etc., He tried to work with the theistic world of Hinduism of the time, and he realized there were a lot of problems in that. Then instead of looking for an outside solution, he began working on himself. He began pulling up his own socks, so to speak, and he became a Buddha. Until he did that, he was just a wishy-washy spiritual tripper. Okay, so this... (laughs) I'm not saying this, Tanisara Bhikkhu is saying this. He has some authority. Um, so taking refuge in the Buddha 
as an example, is an example realizing that our case history is in fact completely comparable to his. And then deciding that we are going to follow his example and do what he did. We are not all that helpless. We have our own resources already. It is very much up to us. Our individuality has produced our own world. The whole situation is very personal. That's end quote. So for me, that's both the good news and the bad news. Um, So I'm an older woman. I grew up in the patriarchy. We're still in the patriarchy. And I am very reluctant to be told what to do by anyone or anything, including anyone who purports to have any sort of spiritual authority. So I was very happy to find a path where I didn't have to give that up, where it seemed to be in my own power to awaken. On the other hand, there's a part of me that that wants to be taken care of. Do you have that part? (laughs) I do. Um, And I would love to be able to believe uh, in something or someone that was outside of myself, that if I just believed in them, that they would take care of things for me, that all it was required to do was just to believe, to surrender. And that was, in fact, how I was raised. So, um, so I, sometimes, I, you know, I, I find myself, I was on a retreat once that was out somewhere where there were some churches around, and they had these big signs like, come in, Jesus loves you. And it was like, oh, you know, the heck with this, this is too hard. I just want to <laughs> go in there and be welcomed and loved. And I'm not putting that down. I'm not putting that down at all. But it was just so interesting to see this longing to, to do that. And, um, and there's, again, there's nothing wrong with that. All of it is workable, as, as uh, Sylvia Borstein would say. It's all things that we can be curious about. It's neither good nor bad. It's just what's there. And it comes out of our own conditioning, and that was my conditioning. So I was raised as a Christian, and I we recited the Apostles' Creed, and I really liked that. You know, it was something that I could believe in. I think I believed in it. I didn't understand all of it. I didn't understand the part about the Holy Ghost. I I still don't understand that. I didn't understand about the virgin birth. I didn't understand it. But I liked repeating it, and I liked the fact that there was a community of believers who were doing that, and I, I felt a part of that, and... There was something very comforting in that. And again, I'm not at all putting that down. It was, it was, I'm just describing my experience. And there were words like begotten and sidif and stuff like that. It sounded very um, important. <laughs> it's, I think it still does. <laughs> um, and I, and I want to recognize that for many people, that, you know, that, that is a uh, source of great solace and, and their spiritual path, and that's beautiful. And I'm, and I'm happy for that. And sometimes I'm even jealous of it, to be honest. And I can't go back. I can't go back to my roots. Um, it's said that Trungpa Rinpoche said something like, better not to start on the path. Is that true? But once you do, best to finish. Is that kind of what he said? Which I take away as meaning, you know, be, 
uh, be careful about what you're getting into because once once you get into it, it is very hard to think otherwise in my experience. And the, again, there's nothing wrong with that, but it is a path. And so kind of once my eyes were open to that, it wasn't possible to go back. So... Um, and so that's the second external refuge, the Dhamma or the teachings. And the teachings have made sense to me. I can, quote, take refuge in them, or I, I can relax into them, find some support in them, because they make sense to me. Because in my own personal experience, what I hear in the teachings is true. And I once said to somebody, I haven't heard anything yet that didn't, that wasn't true. And that's actually still the case for me anyways. I mean, there are cultural things that don't fit totally now, but in terms of the basic teachings of the Dhamma, it still totally seems true to me. And if it doesn't, then that's not something I have to adopt. So this is what's called verified faith in my own experience. It's not faith I've borrowed. In my own experience, in my own life, what I've heard in the teachings is true for me. So this is what appeals to me, actually, in the Dhamma. So the the Buddha said something, he said, ehi pasiko, come and see. Not believe what I say or else, but come and see for yourself. And I I just, I love that. So there's something called the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. So... Maha's great Parinibbana is when the Buddha was passing on. Uh, And this sutta chronicles the events and the teachings at the very end of the Buddha's life. And um, so in that sutta, he urges his monks, I think it was mostly monks, to practice diligently. Um, and so they were all concerned that he was dying. Like, who's going to take care of us? Kind of my thing. I'm going to take. Like, we got to get somebody else here to show us the way. And he said, "No, actually, you know the way. It's within you." So he he urged them to practice diligently so that they could discover what was true for themselves. And so this has traditionally been translated. The words have been translated as, "Be a light unto yourself." Betake yourselves, yourself to no external refuge. Hold fast to the truth. Look not for refuge to anyone besides yourself. And I've always loved that. Be a, be a light unto yourself. But according to Moose Song, he's a, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but he's a contemporary Buddhist scholar of some credentials, and he lives and teaches at the Center for Buddhist Studies. And he says that this should actually be translated as the following. Be an island unto yourselves. Fare forward with apamade, which means diligent care. And he points out that the Buddha isn't saying be an island unto yourself, which is how you might interpret that first translation, but be an island unto yourselves. So it is the community of practitioners that are practicing diligently. So he uses the plural to encourage sangha, basically, which gets me to the importance of the third external refuge, which is the community of practitioners. 
So sangha means a, different things to different people. For some people here, sangha may mean the people who come to common ground. That could be a sangha. In the Christian language, it would be the congregation, or I guess it would be the same in Judaism. I think that's true. Is that true? It's called a congregation? Yeah. Um, for others, the Sangha may be another Buddhist community in the Twin Cities. It could be Clouds and Water, which is a Zen community, or Churgar, a Tibetan community, or maybe it's all of them. I like to go to lots of different ones, so that could be your Sangha. Um, but for me, also an important part of Sangha is um, people who do not self-identify as Buddhists, but whose lives exemplify the ethical underpinnings of Buddhism and who have lived out a life of love and uh, awakening. So my sangha includes people like Martin Luther King Jr. and Gandhi and Nelson Mandela, people that we probably all know, not personally, but we know of them. And it also includes lesser-known people, but to me equally important people, Um, who also exemplify these qualities of the awakened mind. They give me support. I can think of them like, wow, okay, there, there have been people in this world and there are people in this world like that. And so I always like to bring one of those people in when I speak here. So tonight I'm going to bring one in. And this person's name is Ralph Lazo, and I like to bring pictures of them too. So after my talk, you can see him up here. He's in this picture. Um, So I'm going to read about Ralph Lazo. So anybody heard of Ralph Lazo? Okay. So he was a man who voluntarily lived in a Japanese internment camp. He was Hispanic. So... This is just a little bit. So that if you're, you may be familiar with the fact that the New York Times is now trying to correct past injustices, and they're going back and they're finding people that they didn't write obituaries about at the time, but whom they think really are extraordinary. And, of course, they're, they're women. They're people of color. They're people that were left off their obituary track when they were doing it. So they're going back and trying to find these people, and they're writing about them, and, and Ralph Lazo is one of them. So this is, I'll just read a little bit from this. When Ralph Lazo saw his Japanese-American friends being forced from their homes and into internment camps during World War II, he did something unexpected. He went with them. In the spring of 1942, Lazo, a 17-year-old high school student in Los Angeles, boarded a train and headed to the Mazinar Relocation Center, one of ten internment camps authorized to house Japanese-Americans under FDR's order in the wake of the Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor a few months earlier. The camps tucked in barren regions of the United States would incarcerate around 115,000 people living in the West from 1942 to 1946, two-thirds of them United States citizens. Unlike the other inmates, Lazo did not have to be there. A Mexican-American, he was the only known person to pretend to be Japanese so he could be willingly interned. What compelled Lazo to give up his freedom for two and a half years, sleeping in tar paper covered barracks, using open latrines and showers and waiting on long lines for meals and mess halls, on ground surrounded by barbed wire fencing, 
and watched by guards and towers. He wanted to be with his friends. My Japanese-American friends at high school were ordered to evacuate the West Coast, so I decided to go along with them, Lazo told the Los Angeles Times in 1944. By the time Lazo left Mazanar, his social consciousness had deepened and his outrage over the indignity suffered by Japanese-Americans had grown. It would define how he lived the rest of his life as an activist who sought to improve education for underprivileged groups. I'm just going to move forward here. Who can say I haven't got Japanese blood in me, he said in 1944. Who knows what kind of blood runs in my veins? Before he left for internment, he told his father he was, quote, going to camp, unquote. (laughs) Creating the impression that he was going to summer camp. His father did not press him, and neither did government officials whose system for entry into the camps relied largely on self-reporting. When Lasso's father found out where his son had really gone, he did not reprimand him. My father was a very wise man, Lasso said in 1981. He probably was very happy I was there. And there's more about him if you want to read it. So the picture up here is a picture in the internment camp, and Lasso's in the picture, and everyone else there is are his Japanese friends. So I'd like to introduce these people because they're my sangha also, perhaps yours. So people like Mr. Lazo, a seemingly ordinary individual with extraordinary compassion, inspire me by their example of putting aside their own sense of self and their own needs and their own wants for a greater love. It helps me to trust that this is actually possible, at least for others. What it hasn't always helped me to cultivate is a belief in my own capacity to care for others to this degree. And yet, according to all Buddhist traditions, we all have this capacity. We all have an unconditional power of care inside of us. So if, if you know the Tibetan tradition, the Dzogchen the tradition, it's called this, this part of us is called the, the nature of mind. And in the Thai forest tradition, it's called the true mind or the mind released. Suzuki Roshi, who was a Zen master, called it big mind. So this is the mind that's unfettered by greed, anger, and delusion. It's the mind that's empty and knowing and that has a vast capacity for love and compassion. And when I say empty, I don't mean like blank. I mean empty of these things that hook us, of these unwholesome qualities that hook us. Things can arise and pass. So this mind, this nature of mind or the mind release, this is our internal refuge. And so how do we connect to this mind? So one, one way we can start is to take refuge in these external things, the Buddha, the example of an awakened one, the Dhamma, the teachings, and the Sangha or this community. So that's a place we can start. So if we don't think we've got it ourselves, we can begin by reminding ourselves that there are others who have successfully awakened on the path, so the Buddha and perhaps some of you. So it's a way of kind of declaring that we're willing to at least renounce some of our self-doubt and embark upon the path. We're confident enough that we're willing to at least give it a try. 
And so in a sense, we're borrowing from others, and we're borrowing from the Buddha, and we're borrowing from the teachings, and we're getting support from others until we've got it ourselves. And so after all, the Buddha said that he was willing to teach. You know, he didn't want to teach at first after he was awakened, and then a deva or somebody came to him and said, please, please, please. He said, I don't know. And I think probably the deva asked three times. That's usually the way it goes. And he said, okay, I'll do it, because I think there are at least some people out there that can get it. And maybe even we're one of them. Who knows? (laughs) But I often don't feel that way about myself, to be honest. (laughs) Maybe that's your case, too. So um, in some Asian countries, um, taking refuge in these external things, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha includes visualizing uh, enlightened beings, so Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, imagining that we're receiving their love and compassion, and then realizing that that's already inside of us. So we're receiving it from them, and then there's actually a process of bringing it inside, and then we're realizing, hey, I already had that. And there's something called, does anybody know what a refuge tree? There's something called, you probably can't see this, so you can look at it later. There's something that actually looks like a tree um, in which the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas are arranged, and you visualize this, and then you receive their love and compassion, and then you realize it's already in there. So this is a part of a, uh, the practice that's um, done in Tibetan practices. And I've tried this, and I find it somewhat of a stretch because I didn't grow up with Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in my family, so to speak. You know, if you grow up in Tibet, they're, they're there, right? They're part of your culture, and you ha- feel a connection to them. But that's not something that I personally feel. And for some people that their bodhisattva or Buddha might be Jesus or the Virgin Mary or Allah or whomever. And so they might practice with that. I don't know. But one of the people that's helped me to find another way into this internal refuge or this my innate goodness, if you want to call it that, or Buddha nature, which is a no-no in this tradition, but I'm going to say it anyways, um, is somebody named Lama John McCransky. Does anybody know him? Okay, so Lama John is a, um, I love that Lama John. He's, he's a Jewish man who teaches in a Catholic college and he teaches Buddhist um, practices. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, how American can that be? Um, so he is a Lama, he's a Tibetan Lama, which means that he's, that's a title that's been conferred on him. I think it means he has to have done three, three-year retreats in the tri- Tibetan tradition. And he's very interested in helping Westerners um, to access these qualities of compassion and love in our hearts. And he's particularly interested in that because he works with a lot of people who are doing social justice work, people in the helping professions, doctors, nurses, social workers, social activists. And he's seen a lot of them get burned out. And so he's, he's developed some practices to help those people access something inside of themselves that is so good and pure so that they then have that to offer out. 
So I got to study with him, um, and um, and he, he taught us some of these practices, which I'm, I'm going to share one with you. Um, and one of the things that he emphasizes is that we have we it's really important to be able to trust that that quality within yourself, this quality of the unconditioned mind, the mind that is full of love and compassion, and. Um, that what we do instead, because we don't trust ourselves, is we're always looking outside, and we're looking at we're looking to conditioned people for unconditional love, which doesn't generally work, right? Sooner or later, they're going to let us down. So, um, so he's got these practices that help us to begin to connect with that in ourselves. And he says that, that they will help us to gradually wean our minds from looking for it outside and being able to relax into our own innate goodness. And this takes some time. So he suggests that the way we start to do this is to call to mind our own version of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, so calling to mind those in our lives who have showed us some care or who have appreciated us or seen us in some way. Maybe it's an animal being. It could be a pet or it could be a teacher or, if you're lucky, your parent or a friend. These people don't have to be perfect. In fact, none of them are perfect because they're conditioned beings. But, but there, are, there are people that, with whom we have experienced some sense of caring. So it's like visualizing those Buddhas and Bodhisattvas on the refuge tree, feeling their love, and then realizing that that's inside ourselves. Actually, they can only give us what was already in there. So that's the practice that he's developed. And... Um, in my own experience, that's actually really helped me to kind of relax into my own wholesome qualities. So I wanted to lead us through a meditation doing that. Would that be all right? Okay. And so one thing I'll just say as a caveat For some people, it's not possible to call to mind someone who cared for them. That hasn't been their experience. In fact, one way I used to do the benefactor thing with the loving-kindness meditation, I could never think of a benefactor. It took me years to think of a benefactor. And the thing that held me up was that I thought the benefactor had to be perfect. But actually, he really emphasizes that because we're all conditioned beings, these people that we call to mind who have cared for us can have tons of flaws, but it's just that maybe there was someone who showed some caring for you. It could have been a school bus driver or someone like that. If you can't think of anyone, that's okay. Then you can think of maybe a place where you felt safe or relaxed or some sense of relaxation. So that's always a fallback position if you can't think of anybody. So I just invite you to settle into a comfortable seated posture, whatever that is for you. 
And in this meditation, we're going to practice rediscovering the love in our world. The love that has been with us from the start. From those who have been close to us and those more remote. Those who went unnoticed or whom we have forgotten. can even be those whose influence has been on a global scale or those whose influence has been more local. So these are our benefactors, our spiritual benefactors. Some of these benefactors have been well known to us. Perhaps a teacher or a social worker in school who encouraged us to keep going grandparents, parents or other caregivers, animal companions who loved us even when we felt unlovable. So taking a moment now to call to mind beings whose presence and love benefited us directly in some way through teaching or nurturing showing encouragement, or just by being present. Calling to mind beings whose love was expressed in any of the many ways that are possible. And turning also to the many beings who offered themselves to us quietly or in ways that we didn't notice perhaps so much. The school janitor who cleaned our grade school classroom. The neighbor who volunteered to build a playground. The librarian who read a book to us during story time at the library. the doctor or nurse who helped us to heal, the bus driver who drove us to school or work, so taking a moment now to call these beings to mind, not worrying about getting them all, just whoever comes to mind. Acknowledging that although we may not have known them personally, these benefactors were there, giving their love in ways seen and unseen. And now turning our attention to the people in the world throughout history who have benefited countless people in their lives. beings whose influence has been global, who have epitomized or who do epitomize the greatest human potential. Beings such as the Buddha, the Buddha's mother, Jesus, Mary, Martin Luther King, Jr., Mother Teresa, 
Nelson Mandela, Gandhi, the list goes on. So calling to mind these beings. And as other thoughts and feelings arise, letting them be enveloped in this loving luminosity. No matter who you think you are, what you think you deserve, all such thoughts are irrelevant now. So just accepting the benefactor's wishes, these beings' wishes of love for your deeper happiness. Trusting this wish more than any limiting thoughts of yourself. Receiving it into your whole being. Letting yourself rely on this love more than on your own defensive reactions. but also honoring your defenses and acknowledging their importance in keeping you safe. Inviting them to relax a bit, to open to love, if just for this moment. So now relaxing for a bit, receiving the love, the care of your benefactors, these beings who are not totally perfect themselves, but who in some way, large or small, show caring for you, receiving their love. And now after a little while, you might join your benefactors in their wish for you. receiving their love and mentally repeating a wish for yourself. Perhaps something may, like me, I have the deepest well-being, happiness, and joy. May I connect to that which is wholesome and loving and compassionate within my own mind, body, mind. May I know my true nature. Like everyone else in this world, you most deeply need and deserve happiness and well-being. Like everyone else in this world, you have a mind that is empty, that is knowing, that has limitless capacity for love and compassion. So receiving the love from your benefactors and the wish for yourself that you might connect to these qualities. And now finally dropping the visualization of the benefactors and any phrases. And just resting back in the gentle, luminous space of the heart and of the mind.
breathing in love and breathing out love. Breathing in peace and breathing out peace. Breathing in the knowledge that you are loved and that you are loving. So I'll stop talking, and I would love to hear from you any comments, reactions, anything about your experience of this, whatever you would like to share. I'm Alan. Um, One of the comments that I have is right now I'm looking at another thing besides the refuges, and this is the Bodhisattva vows. And one of the things that I've kind of found in traditional approaches to these are a whole lot of consequences that can be very frightening. And uh, the one in the Bodhisattva vow says, you get angry once, you've just destroyed all the merits you've ever had for the last million rebirths. So... (laughs) You know, it's (laughs) not very pleasant. But... This is contrasting with the idea of the, the line that says, be a light unto yourself. So what my question is, is how do we kind of reconcile traditional Buddhist approaches and specific ways of doing things with the kind of Western idea of do your own thing, find it yourself? You want me to answer that? <laughs> do you think that's what the Western ideal is? Do it your do do it your own way. Find it yourself. Is it? I I think that we're closer to that ideal than the East is. Um, but given that also our a lot of our background in Western is still religion that is tied to do it my way or get out. So, I don't know. Personally, I think I look at it a little differently. Um, I think we have this tremendous gift and opportunity in the West to be able to bring together these strands, different strands of Buddhism, and kind of find their common gold, and then bring that forward in a way that makes sense to the modern when it called that way, the modern mind. So I see it as just a, I'm so grateful that I personally can learn from Lama John and Tanisara Bhikkhu and whoever else is, I mean, they're all saying the same thing. They're just kind of going at it in a different way. So, and I've heard teachers say, 
that we're all different. We all have different personalities. We all have different conditioning, and one way does not fit everyone. And and these more traditional practices have come in, come out of very specific cultural contexts, and which were perhaps appropriate for that culture. So, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I just find, I see it as finding the way that is the most accessible for our particular mind, the way our mind has been conditioned. I'm not saying just chuck all the teachings and, you know, do anything, but like what, what do they call it, a spiritual tripper, the Buddha, when he was trying these different things. I'm still talking about kind of adhering to the core of the teachings, but to find the path in to things like compassion practices and all of that, that that fit with who we are. So I'm a person that doesn't have very good concentration, and or I tell myself that, and I always struggle when I'm in a context where I think I'm supposed to be doing something and I'm not feeling like I'm doing it very well. And so that just sets me up for not wanting to continue. That's been my experience. And I've gotten a lot of encouragement from teachers who've said, you need to find the path that works for you within the, 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 the context of the teachings. And so that's what I do. That's just my answer to, to that. Yeah. Do you want to say something? Hi, I'm Devin. Um, I just had a comment on that. When I started reading more and more about Buddhism, I found it really empowering to realize that what I read, I could, you know, read and then verify with what clicked with me. Um, But I found it really empowering that a lot of, um, a lot of how I did things was in my hands and it wasn't, Oh, we'll just turn it over to some higher power or something. Um, I had another thought and I lost it, but um, I think it's also just like, just like you said, um, finding your way, finding your path, and it could be kind of eclectic, um, but it's all about finding what works for you. Um, Norman Fisher talks really interestingly about the role of the imagination. And it's it's very similar for me, the idea of these beings coming through us, touching us and awakening what's already there. It does work that way for me, but um, uh, I work with hospice and there's lots of mother-like women dying alone because their families are gone or they're Husbands have died, and like they, they've spent their lives giving out this mothering energy, but they haven't exactly learned how to turn it the other way and like receive the bounty of their own beautiful heart. And I'm finding for myself, it's actually my own heart that I need to turn and give. And that feels like God energy. It feels like, and it connects with the idea of faith. Like, it seems as though we'd all be so unfilled with fear if we could just trust that we're touched by the divine always and that we're never really alone. And that if we could feel that, no matter how much pain flows in or how alone we are or how much we can't cognate, 
we're not going to lose the faith in it. Like it's in us. It's been activated. So I don't have an answer except that um, love is real and the imagination is real and it's just seeing what we can't see. The ancestors are with us. The ones we slaughtered are still lying by the river waiting for us to open their stories. Hi, I'm Kim. And um, I don't know if you went into detail. I don't think you did about um, internal refuge too much. But um, I was just wondering uh, if you have any ideas on how to deal with um, when you're trying to be aware of your own thoughts in your mind and um, you're trying not to attach to them, but they become so intrusive and obsessive about certain subjects and certain things that they're sparking all these feelings in you, and then it's almost like it's controlling your day, your moods up and down all day. Um, But um, having enough awareness not to act on them necessarily, but knowing, finding out that you're going through life kind of anxious and irritable and on edge because you just can't handle your thoughts. But knowing that you're very aware of them and that, um, you know, that they're not true and, you know, you're having a higher consciousness about them, but they're just still there. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) I know what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any idea on how to deal with that? (laughs) It sounds like you have some sort of idea about how to deal with that. Meditate. (laughs) Well, you said you're aware of them. Yes. Right? That's where you start. I mean, that's the answer, right? Yes. And it's not like it's going to happen overnight. We have very deeply conditioned patterns. The awareness is the thing that creates the space between the thought and and the observer or the mind. So... I think you you know the answer. Maybe you sound a little, you sound maybe a little frustrated that it's not you can't do it all the time. Can anybody do it all the time? <laughs> uh, you know, you, it's practice, right? You keep practicing and try not to be too hard on yourself for that. I mean, these these patterns exist for a reason, right? And in some ways, they're protective sometimes. So honor that. You know, they're, they're not to be uh, dealt with lightly. So you can, you can love those patterns, too. They, they can be our teachers. You know, when we resist it, then it becomes, then we're setting up a dynamic that's not very helpful. So, you know, one of the things that John McCrancy likes to incorporate is um, uh, family systems, where we have all these different parts of ourself. And we hold these all in loving awareness. So these, these persistent thoughts and worries and whatever, we can hold those with love as well. Invite them in. If we would like push them away, then they're going to fight back. So just hold them. Oh, I see you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, my name is Dave, and I, I like the uh, be a light unto yourself, turning that into an island, because... I was reading the Dhammapada, and one of the passages or verses was uh, uh, something like, uh, through effort, uh, vigilance, restraint, and self-control, a wise 
person can become an island, no flood will overwhelm, and the floods are just attachment to sensuality and and, uh, and views and becoming the self and ignorance, and it's just that, you know, it's in that flow, but it's not, it's the same thing with the busy mind, it's in that flow, but it's not, I'm uh, not overwhelmed or not carried away by it, mm-hmm. and that's, I, I don't know if the, I'm curious if the word same poly word was used in both of those i'm just kind of would would like to look into that and see if it is the same word yes i like that that idea the island is a refuge as as opposed to this fortress that's isolated you know it's it's an island it's a refuge in the flows as you said of sensuality and views and yeah thank you hi my name is michelle and i'm going to try to see if i can give some words to these thoughts that have just come through my head but um i'm thinking about the idea of being the awareness of the thoughts that come up right that that are there that come up no matter what right um that i think that awareness word is really key and it's and it's and it's so empowering so I'm a biologist. <laughs> um, we, the way we sense, our, we have our senses, right? That sense the world around us, send us signals, right? And they come in, they enter through our, these signals of the world around us, enter through our senses. And then they trigger emotions, those, 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 the senses that come in, a smell, a taste, a touch of something, right? Goes through our brain, we think about, okay, what was that? And then it triggers emotions based upon our past experience or what we know or a certain perspective. And those emotions are really, really powerful. Um, neuroscientists are finding that w- that almost pretty much 100% of our choices, decisions, and actions are based in our emotions, not our cognitive brain, but it's our emotions that determine what we choose to do or act or say, right? So if we have that space of awareness in our brain, right, say, oh, it's making me feel this way, this thought or this this sense that I'm taking in or this idea that's spinning in my head or appearing in my brain, it's triggering these emotions, and just to be able to take that breath and say, oh, it's making me feel this way. And it's an emotion. And emotions change. And they go and they leave. They don't stay. They change, right? And if, if, if we just say that's an emotion, then be able to say, why am I feeling this way? And what is it that I want? Right, because if we react immediately to an emotion, we're not taking that step to say, "What does this all really mean, and what's really happening, and what do I really want?" And so that that ability to have that space, that awareness, to take the breath and say, "What does this mean?" Right? I can I can I can let it go. Um, it can simmer a while, but it doesn't really. Um, have power or control over me, I can choose that, right? It's making me feel a certain way, but that's an emotion, right? It's not that thought itself. It's the emotion that comes with it. And, and, and emotions are really powerful. 
And if we can have um, power over them through that awareness and say, oh, that's an emotion, and take that breath to say, what does it mean and what do I want? It can help us, um, give us that power, I think. Joseph Goldstein talks about describing things instead of saying, I'm, I'm fearful. He, he says, fear is being known. It takes the self out of it. So, yeah, and when the self isn't there, then it's just part of our experience, of experience. So, so should we wrap up? Do you have announcements? Yeah, yeah. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.